Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show Alive and Kicking at Newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, we'll be talking men's health and dad bods with medical exercise expert Andrew Dunn. Spencer Matthews and John Belton return triumphant from the Jungle Ultra. And do you fancy a street feast? I'll be telling you how you can bring your community together this June. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I'm definitely feeling the summer energy and I am loving it. So I'm up early, I'm staying out late, getting in the walks, getting in the sea, sitting in gardens, chatting with friends. So yes to all of this. And I was asked this week to come on Lunchtime Live to talk about comments that were made by the actress Rosamund Pike that people are being conned by the wellness industry. And while... Yes, I agree that you should proceed with caution before imparting your hard-earned cash in pursuit of wellness. And I don't like that vulnerable people can be targeted and promised to be living their best life in just a few steps for just a small price. I also don't think that we should throw it all out. I don't like that health and wellness is often pitted against each other, that health, one is based in science and that wellness, the other, is mumbo-jumbo. I believe that health and wellness are interlinked and that they depend on each other. We as people need more than just a body that functions. We're not robots. We've got emotions and experiences and that's what shapes us. And let's be honest, modern life is tough and there are times when we need help to make sense of it all. Time away to work out where we're at, what we want and need. And there are plenty of evidence-based practices within wellness, cold water therapy, breath work, meditation and lifestyle medicine, looking at how you're managing your stress and your life. That all has a major impact on your health. I'm not sure my points were as salient as that on Tuesday, but I thought it was worth repeating my thoughts again here. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. And my thoughts on the wellness industry lead me rather nicely into a time when there was an absolute con. Mark Fennell is an Irish life coach who was contacted by the BBC to take part in a documentary exposing a cult who took people in under the guise of mentoring and life coaching. And Mark Fennell joins me in studio now. Mark, you're very welcome. Thanks very much for having me. So you got a phone call, did you, or an email? So it was an email and it was, you know, labelled BBC and I thought it was spam originally and I was, I did nearly delete it, but I said, I'll just have a look on the off chance. And then I looked and I said, this looks legit. So I replied, it was legit. Yeah, it was from the BBC. It was a researcher from the BBC initially that reached out to me to kind of connect the dots. And what's interesting is... And I suppose it's a good thing. They didn't tell you what the investigation was about. They just told you you were to represent life coaching. Basically, yeah. So they they kind of done their homework on me and they saw that I've been in the field quite a long time and I do a lot of corporate coaching and other things. So they said, right, I was kind of well-rounded to suit. They didn't tell me exactly what I was invest- what the investigation was about. They just wanted me to basically guide them in what's best practice, what's not good practice, what's normal, what's to expect and what isn't. And just to kind of be that. But I also had to do some coaching sessions with them. Um, in real time. So that was an experience because obviously, you know, Catherine is is a very, very good researcher and she was leading the investigation. And so I knew she might be sceptical. So I said, this could go very well or very badly, but look, we're in for a penny, in for a pound. So, um, so I did some sessions with her as well. So it was a great experience, to be honest. So the BBC investigation um, is part of what went out as a podcast. It's called A Very British Cult. Mm. And I won't give away any spoilers because it's a real grab you in and listen. But basically, it's an organisation called Lighthouse and they were 
bringing people in under the guise of mentoring and life coaching. And it turned out to be far more in the realms yeah. of, of, of a cult. Yeah, I mean, basically, it was actually on BBC One as a TV show as well, BBC Two and BBC Four. And then they made a subsequent podcast around it because there was so much in it that they said, we can't fit this into an hour show. So it became the podcast as well. Um, and ultimately what it was is that there's a lot of stuff in the world today from a wellness or life coaching and so forth. And you can become a life coach kind of fairly quickly. You know, I'm doing this now nearly 20 years, but there's a lot of, I suppose, misleading that can happen. And so people think, oh, they're called a life coach. They have a qualification to some degree. They must be fine and they invest and so forth. But what happened was in this instance, many people had invested a lot of time, energy, money, and it was basically something that was one person, for example, £130,000 they gave to it. Someone remorged their house. And it was basically isolating people away from their family and support system and taking their money was the kind of the, the macro view. But it was done slowly and incrementally over time. And I think it's a danger that faces us now in society. It's, it's not just, you know, from what happened with that particular um, organisation, but this stuff goes on and it's a lot more common than, than one might think, which is the scary part. And it is something that I often think about mm. in the wellness arena, that there is a sort of an air of if you're broken, you can be fixed yeah. or, you know, whether it's a, a magic pill or a transformation or a do this course and, and this idea that we can be living our best lives if we follow these five yeah. simple steps. And it's getting people at crossroads in their lives, at vulnerable times in their lives. And there are some incredibly empowering people who are doing the right work, yes. but then you can be led down a, a, a very different path. Yeah, very much so. What I've seen even is that sometimes, you know, for someone's listening going, how do I know, how do I acid test if this is good or works or doesn't? I, I would always say, look at the kind of the root behind some stuff and some practices because I've seen, I was at an event in Dublin a month ago and a person got up on stage who I know and what they were sharing is very manipulative kind of tools. It was giving a sales seminar but I said, that stuff is is quite corruptive. It's, you know, I know it's 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 deemed not good morally. And so this is what's going on. It's very hard for people to kind of acid test and say, well, I know that person from, say, online. How do I know what they're selling is good or right? Always, I always say like this, look at the heart behind it. Is it legitimately there to help you, number one? And secondly, if there's any practices or anything they're recommending, look at the root cause of it. Um, amazingly, from being involved with this whole thing, some stuff that I would see people share online, for example, a lot of the time is rooted in black magic and white magic. And I never knew this stuff. And I was like, that's scary stuff. Like, what do you mean by black magic and so white magic? this was the crazy thing that I was kind of made aware of. And it wasn't with that particular organisation. They use kind of, they do other stuff. But what had been highlighted to me from when they opened the door to a lot of what goes on in the wellness world, certain things that people would say, oh, do this to cleanse yourself, do this to cleanse your house, your house or whatever it might be. And when one looked into the root of these, the origins of where these things were based in, they were based in ritualistic stuff from way back when. And it was quite a, I, should I say, dark kind of origin to a lot of this stuff that we're kind of accepting today as kind of normal. And so that's why I would say to somebody, look into, look into whoever you're talking to, look into what they're sharing with you. What's the origins? Google it. I mean, this stuff is not hidden necessarily. But the big part of the way of knowing if it's working or not is, are you getting results? Because if someone's taking your money, but there's no results, well, that's a big, you know, red flag. But then at the same time, if someone's making this more about the money than the service they're offering you and trying to kind of wean you away from your support system, like in, as you saw probably from the podcast, 
they pull you away from your support system, they pull you away from your family because they're trying to isolate you, to manipulate you to, in this particular instance, to get your money. And so the problem with that is it leaves you a vulnerable person even more vulnerable and it's done drip fed over time. So they don't start with that because you'd see that coming. They do it slowly and incrementally over time. And that's the scary part about this. And the wellness world does a lot of incredible good. I'm in it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a performance coach. That's what I do. But you've got to be careful because there are the few. It's like any sector. There's always going to be the few that may mislead, may not be what they say on the tin. Maybe they don't have the experience, but they're trying to get in on kind of piggyback off the back of it. You've just got to look at the stuff, trust your gut, look at the reviews, look at where they're coming from and, and go with your gut a lot of the time. Sometimes people will have a little bit of an unction of, I'm not sure about this or this seems very kooky to me or, well, if it feels that way, maybe you're listening to yourself on that one. It's, it's hard to navigate, but I always say to people, if you're feeling your gut instincts telling you to red flag, listen to that, you know, listen to that and, and look into the background of things and people and, and where they're coming from. But aren't there so many? I'm thinking of some of them now, some of the biggest names in the wellness world yeah. who are making colossal amounts of money yes. off the back of people arriving to get this secret formula to be saved. Yeah, yeah. And is that okay, Mark? You see, I think at the end of the day, doing something to make money is is a person trying to do a job, but it's not as necessarily offering a service. A service, in my opinion, gives you a result. So you don't mind spending money if you're getting the results, legitimate results that have increased or made your life better. Well, then you don't mind spending money to invest in yourself because that is an investment. But when someone's just working something just to take your money or, or make money, I think that sometimes comes to the surface a lot of the time. But what I will say is look at the experience of the person working with you and is there a track record that they've worked with people like you and the person got the result they wanted? And that's just simple asset testing. It's kind of like when you're picking someone to work in your house. You kind of go, well, are they good? I'm not going to let some you know, random person is. You, you do your homework. The same is true for the wellness world. Just because it's a face you know or it's a brand you're familiar with, check, is it actually what it says on the tin? Is it legitimately going to give you the result or is it going to actually help you? There's a lot of stuff out there which is kind of kooky, you know, and it makes people feel better. And if it works for you, it works for you. You know, let's not mm -hmm. diss it. I'm, that's what I'm saying. It's finding what works for you. But at the same time, when things start to look and, and I suppose pinch your pocket, you really want to make sure you're getting results in that respect, like any service. So you were there to represent what a life coach truly is. So yeah. what, what does a life coach do? So a life coach is not a counsellor, not a therapist and not a financial advisor. <laughs> so, but what a life coach does is a life coach is future focused. So we look at where you're at now and where you want to get to. And maybe even opening up where you want to get to and making it even dream bigger. Because a lot of people don't tap into their full potential. That's just a fact. Because their limiting beliefs, you know, how they were brought up, whatever it might have been. But a life coach works with where you are and where you're going. Um, a counsellor is more, or a therapist is more about processing your past. And so, although a coach might do that to some degree, that is not the main focus of coaching. That's more of a therapist or counsellor, so to speak. So, you kind of go... For example, with myself, I work a lot with people who've maybe been to therapy, been to counselling, and then they come to me. But I also have, like, some of my clients are psychologists because they want that kind of coaching perspective. They don't want to go to another psychologist that's come from the same school of thought. They want that kind of coaching perspective. But I will also say this. There's, for example, there's a psychiatrist that will send clients to me that don't want to be medicated, don't want to go to the counselling or therapy, but they know they need to change how they're at. And they will send some of their clients to me. And I will work with them again, more future focused. So therapy is not for everyone, but it does a whole lot of good. 
Coaching's not for everyone, but it does a whole lot of good. But at the end of the day, you've got to find what works for you. And if it's giving you the results, well, then you're stepping in the right way. I always say to everybody, and I think it's, a, it's something I'll actually say as a fact, most people don't reach their full potential in life. So because they're only seeing things through their eyes, their mindset, and it's very hard to fix a problem with the same mindset that's been always viewing the problem. That's where you need to bring in a professional. And so all I'm saying is look into the professional that you're going to bring into your life because it's your life at the end of the day. And that's not something to play with. And it's not something for someone to exploit and take your money either. So be careful. So I say like this, the wellness does more good than anything, but it does come with a warning. And do you think we've lost focus on what a successful life is? It's gone very capitalist and, you know, getting all of these things and getting all this money and getting out there. And it's kind of being sold to us over and over through social media where we're forgetting. We're trying to just get to a place of contentment within our own skin. 100%. 100%. I I had someone who was basically based in Ireland and they said, I'm going to get into the, you know, going into the coaching world and so forth. And I was like, okay, cool, that's fine. And they came to me for kind of some heads up. And then I see their course package of, you know, six figure income go from six figures to seven figures and it was it was that kind of thing and that's all well and good for someone who's ambitious and, and so forth I'm not knocking that but what I am saying is but you got to make sure that the foundation of your life is right and it, that's where we're losing the mark what actually makes for a successful individual is not the bank balance I'm not going to give you that oh you know money doesn't make you happy money makes you a lot happier than having none put it that way I've been on both sides of the coin but what I am saying is fulfillment should always be the objective. Not even happiness. People, I think, we're in a pursuit of happiness. Happiness is transient, it changes. But pursuing fulfillment and what's fulfilling for one person might be different to another. But if you're fulfilled and content 90% of your life, well, then that's it. There's no change in that. And that's the goal. And that sounds quite broad, I know. But when it, what a coach will do is I'll sit down with someone and find out what's fulfillment for them. And they're the kind of prized things because generally it comes down to peace, Less stress, less worrying, less comparing myself. Those simple bases, being loved and being able to give love, those simple things. Like I've been through stuff, my own story and different things. And I've, I've discovered, you know, that seeking fulfillment life or fulfilled life and whatever that is looks like to you, that's the key. And if, if for you, fulfilling is getting to the top of the tier of your ambition, because I do a lot of corporate coaching, well, then let's work on that. But let's make sure we got the basics right too. Do you see a coach too? I, so oh, I have a long story. So basically, um, yeah, I, I would have people who I would, in my circle, um, not just one, I'd have, have more than one. They wouldn't be, they'd be performance coach is what I'd call them. Um, they don't go under a title. Um, so yeah, I've got three mentors in my life. So yeah, and different age groups as well. And that's what you hear all the time, that people who coach or are in positions where they have been, they tend to get one as well, you yeah, know. You need to. You see, you, you can't... You're believing in the process. You can't fix everything with just your outlook because you're going to make mistakes. You're going to get it right, but you also get it wrong. So we need our perspectives. We may not buy into their perspective, but we need that guidance. And I think getting the right people around you, and that's what sometimes cultish behaviour will do. It'll pull you away from your support system so that you only see them as your God almost. And then you get to- completely misled and down the wrong path. So how did you feel when the BBC investigation was fully revealed to you and you found out about this organisation and what it was doing? Yeah, I mean, I I won't be, I won't lie to you, I was quite nervous because I didn't know what we were going up against and a couple of names popped in my head and I wonder is this, I wonder is it that and you know, I know they have a lot of gravitas behind them and whatever else and I, you know, it came down to and my wife said, why why are you going to do it? And I said, and, and she made me really think, 
my wife's one of my coaches for sure. <laughs> but like, you know, uh, behind her, you know. But what I did say was this. I said, well, the reason I do coaching at the end of the day was to help people because I did coaching for years and not by paid, just volunteering, you know, and I still do a lot of pro bono stuff. And I said, well, the reason I'm doing this is to help people not be misled. So that's the heart behind it. And I said, so that's why I'm going to do it. And if it works great, if it doesn't, whatever. Because when I was coaching Catherine, I said, she's very cynical about the whole thing. Yeah, she's the reporter. The main one, yeah. And I said, she might kind of turn around and, and one of these episodes could be terrible about my experience. But I said, you know what? My heart is to help and that's the bottom line. And that's why I went and did it. Was I nervous? Yes. But we're always going to be nervous doing going into the unknown. But what's it achieved and the messages and emails from all around the world, literally, because it's, it's gone very, very wide and far, is that people are, a lot of people have been lost and nearly got bit by similar organisations in you know their country or whatever. And so for me, I kind of say, you know, was I nervous? Yes. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Because it's achieved a lot of good. I think it's brought a conversation like we're having today. And those conversations need to be had. You know, it's great saying something's amazing, but let's just be careful. Always walk with caution. Yeah, well, it's hard for us to watch the documentary. iPlayer doesn't really the BBC tend to player. let us in. Yeah, no, they, they keep it behind lock and key, but you can listen to the BBC Sounds podcast. Correct. It's called A Very British Cult. It will suck you in and yeah. open your mind. Uh, Mark, where can people find you? Yeah, sure. It's also, by the way, it's on iTunes and Spotify as well, in case you're looking for the a very British cult, it's called. Yeah, uh, Instagram, as I always say, what most people go to, markfennel.ie um, and obviously the website, markfennel.ie. .ie um, connect there if you have any questions or queries conundrums whatever the case might be yeah it looked, I set up those pages and websites to help people at the end of the day and that's that's the moral of the story it's not a cult it's a coach <laughs> thank <laughs> exactly. you so much for coming on thank you Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking and happy Father's Day to all the dads listening. And if you're missing yours today, we are sending love too. And because of that, and as it's been Men's Health Week this week, I've asked medical exercise expert and show regular Andrew Dunn to take a look at the male perspective for us. And he joins me in studio now. Well, you're a man. Are you a dad? I am newly. Uh, well, not 11 months. We've uh, Eva is 11 months old, so oh, she's nearly, wow. nearly a year. Okay, and is she on the move? She is. She's very much on the move now in the last uh, last month or so. So it's been a brilliant year. To, you know, new parenting is challenging for, for everyone, but brilliant as well. I wouldn't swap it for the world. Yeah, I mean, it turns your life upside down, but in the best possible way as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been fantastic. So we're going to look at men's health then. And, and you have a theory about men and exercise. Well, certainly my own peer group, I have a theory. Um, we're, we're always told in, in clinical work not to make too many assumptions, but we're, we'll allow ourselves, I suppose, anecdotal theories at times. So what, I, what I've seen certainly in the last 10, 11 years of, of working in exercise medicine is quite a divergence, is men my age who become new fathers, for example, lose fitness a lot or they go in the opposite direction and they get into extreme fitness. And there tends to be um, not a whole lot of people who are landing in the middle and, and finding that balance. Um, and it's interesting because the ones who become super fit or do extreme events or ultra marathons or, or triathlons um, often are, cha- are, are dealing with significant challenges as a result of doing that extreme type of work. And then obviously the, the ones who, who avoid fitness or have, have legitimate reasons, life stresses, lack of sleep, increased financial demands and responsibilities and just can't find the time 
to get fit or keep fit. So um, it's a theory based on, I suppose, the anecdotes of 10, 11 years work working with, with these, I suppose, peers, I would call them now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sport seems to become the exercise for a lot of men. And I know that's quite stereotypical and we're starting to, to break all that down. We're breaking down gender and, you know, that anybody can can play a sport. But that's certainly... <clears throat> For for my anecdotes, that's what I see, that, you know, a boy will play a lot of sport. He'll carry that on in to his adult life. And then as he gets older, injury becomes a thing and then the, the exercise goes. Yeah, well, that's pretty spot on. I think when we go from, you know, men in their late teens, 20s, typically can, you know, bounce out of the changing rooms and start playing sport barely with a warm-up and as we get into our 30s and certainly into our 40s you see fellas taking longer to get warmed up um, it's literally trying to crank up the engine and then eventually they're you know they're playing multi-directional sport if you're, they're playing five aside on a Tuesday night you start seeing fellas breaking down because they're doing ballistic movement it's quite dynamic and if they've been working in an office all week and not doing a whole lot else the the change in workload on their tissues is too high so you see fellas snapping all kinds of muscles and tendons and twisting ankles hurting knees like in sometimes quite serious injuries and that becomes the moment and they either abandon sport fitness, I can't do it anymore, I shouldn't do it, there's too much going on, I can't afford to be out of work and so on. And then they, they not not consciously make choices, but maybe subconsciously say, well, look, it's time to, to move away from that stuff, I'm, I've, I've gone beyond it. And that becomes a real challenge because there are a multitude of ways to keep fit, whether it's playing sport, whether it's being in the outdoors, whether it's doing it at home, if you're time poor and you're, you're pressed for for uh, time, you know, like that. It doesn't have to be five-a-side and it doesn't have to be an ultramarathon. There, there is a real middle ground. Um, and let's talk about that middle ground because that's why I love having you on because it's changing the conversation around what exercise is. You're not just there for the guns. You're not just yeah. there because I think people stop caring about that later in life. They're yeah. like, this is me, like it or lump it and I'm just going to carry on. But you're talking about things like mobility and living longer and, you know, mm. vitality. So we have to be thinking about, as we age, the decreasing lean muscle. And what effect does that have on us and, and things like cholesterol and heart disease? Yeah, um, well, that's, yeah, it's a great question because I think it, it becomes less about vanity for men in their 40s. They start, you know, I've we've, unfortunately, in my own group of friends, we've had a, a friend who, who tragically passed away from a, a brain hemorrhage a couple of years ago and it's that period in life where you suddenly start to encounter your own mortality all of a sudden when you weren't doing it in your 20s and 30s or you start to see it with your parents or you start to, your friend's group starts to develop issues around blood pressure, high cholesterol, blood sugars and suddenly you're in, you're medicalised in your late 40s, you're on medications for stuff. So people are looking at it in in certainly men in their 40s are looking at exercise in a way, how can I improve my quality of life? How can I increase my chances of longevity? And they're really legitimate questions and, and queries. And the, the, the ways to do it are, you don't have to, to look at it very scientifically if you're not that way inclined, but you need to get a measurement. So 
people will go and get a, a, a medical, maybe with their company sponsors it. And again, men in their 40s and 50s are probably progressing in, in work where they're decision makers and they will make decisions in work based on data always and metrics, but they'll, they'll maybe blindfold and, and uh, blindfold themselves on fitness. So what we encourage is you go and get baseline measurements of your lean muscle, your cardiorespiratory fitness, which is your VO2 max. You measure your mobility and your flexibility and you measure things like power. And like you can get that done in a clinical setting. But what that does is it gives you a baseline measurement that's so valuable for you in the next 20 years that you've always can come back and check against. So if you're doing five-a-side, if you're going for a 5K jog, if you like cycling, you start to realise, well, look, this is good for me, but actually two years ago I had two kilos more of lean muscle. That's really impactful on your health as well. Um, a 47-year-old who's lost two kilos of lean muscle has a much higher chance of developing problems with blood sugar, diabetes, um, cholesterol issues, blood pressure. That's called metabolic syndrome. So loss of lean muscle in men from 40 onwards has a big impact medically. So that's one of the main reasons we say measure it and then start doing strength training, for example. And how long does it take to turn that dial around? I mean, obviously everyone's results are going to be different. Mm, mm. But once you get that baseline results, are you really going to have to step up what you're doing or can there be small incremental changes? Very, very, I think the key is small incremental um, but with consistency. I think um, I would like to stress very clearly, having lost significant amount of fitness myself in the last year, you do not need to be fit to get tested. What it tells you is, right, you're this level of unfit, but you can become fit in a six-month period by doing X, Y, and Z. That's what a testing will do. And so you're not, again, you're not guessing around this. And so... To gain lean muscle, for example, or to maintain lean muscle in your 40s, you're talking about about six weeks work to, to see changes in muscle tissue consistently. That's that's not crazy. And then if you can maintain that uh, consistently over a long, longer period of time, you're probably talking about two 30-minute strength sessions a week. And then, of course, comes with it that feel-good factor, the endorphins, that you're actually doing something actively so that you'll be able to bend down and play with your grandkids later on in life. And mm. it reduces your stress. So I think when you flick that switch of why you're doing it, it comes from a bit more of a positive place than just beating yourself over the back to get bigger, get fitter, get faster. You know, yeah. it's got a bit more of a, a zen appeal to it. Absolutely. I think it can be compulsive for some people because what happens is they take a leap, they really give it a crack and they start to get this lovely chemical feedback from dopamine and serotonin, hormonal feedback. So it reduces stress, it increases happiness level. So people start to become addicted to that side of the exercise, which is a really um, huge advantage. But sometimes can be tricky in that people then become compulsive exercises and uh, exercisers rather and almost need to go for a run in order to feel good. So it's trying to find that balance um, around, like you said, the more zen-like approach to this is beneficial for my health for the next 30 to 40 years and I need to be consistent and sustain it versus I need to lose 6% body fat in the next three months, which 
while it's admirable, it's not that likely and causes often more stress upon people. Yeah, and I I think even the, the ultra fit, the regular gym goers, the runners, all need to have their mobility checked and all need to have their fitness levels checked as well. So do people just Google fitness test and, and wherever they are? Yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of providers. I think... Um, there, there are four areas. I've, I've again, they're they're key pillars in exercise medicine or fitness: strength, cardiorespiratory, mobility, and then there's an umbrella term called neuromotor, which is power, agility, coordination, balance. It's like an umbrella term, but those four areas can be tested in a physiotherapy clinic. They can be tested in a gym. They can be tested in a medical exercise clinic, like ourselves. But there are many places you can get it done. Um, where I really like to push it with my own peer group and men going into their 50s and 60s is you ought to have some baseline where you can then compare yourself and and measure your progress. The actual um, work that you do or the fitness that you do should be something you love and something that you can sustain. But at least then you've got some ideas that are helpful for you or otherwise. Well, consider that a Father's Day gift to all men out there. Andrew Dunn, thank you so much for coming on and happy Father's Day to you too. Thanks for me, Claire. Too late on the do less idea are Spencer Matthews and John Belton. They were on the show a few weeks back to talk about the Jungle Ultra, 260 kilometres through the Amazon jungle. Well, they only went and finished second and third and they are on the line now. Congratulations to you both. Oh, thanks a lot. Was a podium place on your wish list or were you just focused on completion? Because it was an epic challenge no matter what. Um, that that changed with the coffee in Cusco. Uh, so, <laughs> so we initially, so, so we were told that only 58 people had ever finished this race. Um, and the race has been going for, for eight years. It'll be the ninth year next year. Um, and so with that in mind, we thought to ourselves, let's, make it easy and make sure we complete the long course because completing it will be incredible. About six people finish on average each year. So I thought, look, if I come sit in this thing, I'll be completely delighted. Um, but then we had a couple of double espressos and, and the whole game changed. We, we became competitive after that because, I mean, let me tell you something. If you're a fan of coffee, you need to get yourself over to Lima and Cusco. It's rocket fuel. Yeah, that, that, that'll have to be your next business. You'll have to ship it over and send it out to us. And John, I was watching a video on your Instagram last night of your experience that was put together by a videographer following you. And at the start of it, you said, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm excited, but I feel really underprepared. And I couldn't even believe you were saying that. Is that because you only had nine weeks to prepare? Like you're a super fit individual anyway. Um, yeah, look, these events, Carol, I think, they bring up they bring up a lot of things for people, and everyone races for a different reason, and everyone has you know different things they're ready for and not ready for. And uh, truthfully, this race for me was, was much more mental than anything else. Um, not even just the mental piece of getting through it, but I felt quite torn about going to do the race. That a you know pregnant wife at home, and financially it's a big commitment, and there's a whole lot of reasons. Um, which, which took from the training and hampered it a little bit on the build-up. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I literally got to the start line with a, with a constant voice in my head saying, you know, you, shouldn't, you don't deserve to be here, you shouldn't be here. So there was a bit of a battle for me with the old six inches upstairs. But um, 
truthfully, that's that's why these races are epic, and that's why men need to explore what their full capacity is. Uh, you know, because I, I feel like the, the guy who was on the start line and the guy who was on the finish line they were two very different people. Wow, and what goes through your head then once you start? Spencer, can you give us an idea of what it's like, what the experience is like? Because I suppose nothing can really prepare you for it until you're actually there. Yeah, well, exactly. Look, when John said in his video that he was underprepared, I was like, wow, if he feels that way, I mean, <laughs> John is, John is uh, a force of nature. He's incredibly fit. Uh, I, I've done, a, uh, you know, some of this stuff before, as has John, and I always find that they're, they're very different each race. Uh, and when you live in London, preparing for an ultra through the Amazon uh, is incredibly difficult because you can't really replicate um, the terrain or the humidity. So, so, so it's kind of like, you know, you can get yourself to be comfortable running uh, and that's about all you can do, which is, you know, something that John and I kind of have anyway, I suppose, but it's, 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 it's tough. You don't really know what to expect. There was a lot of change up in this one. So there was incredibly, you know, hard ground, tarmac ground, black tarmac, um, which was, you know, incredibly hot and the heat would reflect up and bounce into your face about 30 degrees 100, 100% humidity, over 5,000 meters of, of escalation uh, over the course of the five days. Uh, and of course, the, the rainforest, you know, we went through areas of the rainforest that only 50, 60 people have ever been through. The, the, the course changes slightly each year, and it is um, prepared specifically for this race. It takes them about uh, one week to hack one kilometer of trail. Uh, so it, it's it's a really big deal, uh, and beyond the ultimate, have just done the most incredible job. It's, it's really well managed, uh, and people feel kind of safe and in control at all times, I suppose. And it was, uh, yeah, just 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 a real experience. On one of the days, we we had to we waded through the actual Amazon River itself for four or five hours. Uh, about 12 kilometers, but of course you're moving very slowly. Then you're met with all kinds of escalation. Um, you know, there was a day where John and I were clocking kilometers in 48 minutes. You know, like we can run kilometers, I suppose, on a nice normal road in four and a half, five minutes. But we were taking 48 minutes to do a single kilometer. That's how difficult uh, the terrain was, and of course, that's very draining on the mind and body when you know you have 230 kilometres to cover. And I asked you when you came on before this, would the two of you help each other, see each other? Was there any sort of plan for that? And, and both of you said, look, we'll go with the flow. We're backing each other all the way. But who knows what will happen? But it did seem like you you came together a good few times throughout it and then sort of finished in podium side by side. How did that go down, John? Yeah, there was, you know, we, we both agree. I said this to Spencer in the most complimentary of fashion. I, I don't know if there's anyone else I could do a race like this with uh, because I'd either care too much about them and not be able to leave them behind or not feel competitive with them. And myself and Spencer are very unique friendship that we've developed, whereas, you know, we both knew, I knew Spencer was there if I needed him and he knew I was there if he needed me. But we also kind of had this little piece where, well, I'm not going to let you beat me, you know. Um, <laughs> we we raced very strategically. We, we played, both of us played to our strengths. I kind of ran harder in the first two days, and knowing that the third day was quite hilly. Spencer's exceptionally strong on the hills. So uh, on the third day, we sped together, and, you know, he helped me on the hills. I helped him on the, on the road afterwards. 
you know, we're con- you're constantly racing against the clock. You're constantly racing against other individuals that may be, you know, 20 minutes behind you starting into, day, into a day where you know they're stronger than you, so you have to work harder. Uh, we, we stuck together quite a lot. Um, and, and truthfully, on day five, it was each, their, you know, everyone for themselves, I guess, because it's a 75K day that starts at 4.30 in the morning. Um, and it's a daunting, it's a daunting thing to take on. And uh, I knew I needed to get, you know, the road on its road at the start. I needed to get that under my feet as quick as I could, get get through that so that I could kind of read in the middle. Um, and yeah, you know, look, we had people along. I knew he was there the whole time, chomping at chomping at my heels at, at times. But it was finishing the podium. I think was a really, I wouldn't have been able to do that without him. Um, I'm not going to say that he wouldn't be able to do it without me, but it, it definitely helped having him to push and, and pull me along the way. And Spencer, what got you through the, the tough times? What was the mindset stuff that you were turning to when your body was given up? Uh, just just the desire to complete it, just the desire to, 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 to get to the end. I didn't sign up not to finish this thing. I didn't fly 26 hours you know, across the world and then take a six-hour bus journey to the start line to not finish this thing. So, I don't know. I think experience of other races helped. You know, there was less naivety, I suppose, going into this one than when I did Marathon de Sable, as an example. This was a calmer thing for me. There was never really any serious desire to give up, um, which is which is great, you know, and that's all you can really hope for, because I think once thoughts like that start to creep into your head, oh, I'm not going to finish this, I'm not able to do it. Uh, it's very difficult, I think, to to get out of that. I had to take painkillers and I had to just, you know, grip my teeth through the pain. My feet were pretty bad quite early on, actually, in in this race. I couldn't believe you were wearing like big hiking boots, which of course makes sense because you're w- working through the jungle. But the thoughts of wading through a river in that and then having to keep moving in them, I, I'm I'm sure that wasn't easy. What kept you going, John? Um, sorry, the, the shoes we both bought uh, were actually, they looked quite quite heavy, but they were super, they're Salomon racing shoe that has a, they're like the four-wheel drive of, of runners, um, which worked really well. They were like a water-resistant shoe that protected our feet for, for most of the event. I suppose what kept me going throughout the whole thing, there's never a question of, never, ever a question of, um, of not getting through it. Um. The biggest thing for me was the exact same as the ice world for last year, Claire. I'm sure if you listen back, I'll tell you the same story. I only ever ran one red flag at a time. You know, the course is marked out every 50 to 100 metres with a red little red flag. Uh, I had a strategy from each one red flag to the next, and I never looked past that. Uh, each flag, there was a reassessment on how I'm feeling, and uh, there was a reassessment on where the course is, um, and then there was a plan put in place and executed. So if I'm... You know, if I'm feeling if I'm feeling strong, I'm going to run for 25 red flags, and I literally would count out 25 red flags. Then I give myself either a gel because I'd be due to take a gel, or I'd get some water, and whatever that was. If I'm struggling, I but I needed to push. I'd say, right, run, run for half of this red flag, run for 10 steps, then walk the remaining 10. I know it sounds very OCD, but you know, it's it's the journey of a thousand miles. That's with the first step. It's really I only ever ran from one red flag to the next, and that got me through 230 kilometers. Well, hats off to the two of you. I mean, in any video footage I saw, you were actually making it look easy and it is almost impossible what you achieved. It's it's incredible. I'm sure that feeling is addictive. I hate when people say, 
what's next? What's next? But does that become addictive? I mean, I know you have uh, plans, John, of, of becoming a dad and that's going to be taking up a lot of your energy over the next while. Mm-hmm. But Spencer, are you beginning to tick to the next ultra? I know about another kind of five day ultra. Um, yeah, look, I'm always interested in the challenge and I find I find um, not challenging yourself, not pushing your boundaries, not trying to learn, you know, where your boundaries are to, to be boring. You know, I, I don't want to just work long days and spend my evenings at home. I like having an idea in my head of, of what's next. Um, we are fresh uh, home. So I haven't given it too much thought, if I'm honest, but we'll certainly do more stuff. I'll try not to be away, but like, given that this was in Peru, you know, we were away for 10 days. It's quite a long time to be away for a race, to be honest, with three kids. So, um, so you know, I, I might have a look at a for Lion Man or, or something like that, or, or perhaps uh, perhaps something for, for charity, maybe for, for comic relief and try and do something that hasn't been done before. Maybe I started thinking last night. I don't know. Uh, but I'd certainly be talking to my pal John about that uh, mm-hmm. and seeing if we can help each other. But no, I mean, the world is full of incredibly interesting challenges and ways of pushing yourself, and I'm keen to explore them. Well, it is inspirational watching you do that, for sure. And as you say, there are many ways we don't necessarily have to trek to Peru to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone. And you're right, stay in this feeling, stay in this feeling of achievement. And, you know, as we mentioned in the interview before, Spencer was raising money for the Michael Matthews Foundation and you can still donate. You can find out more on his Instagram at Spencer Matthews. And I know you're both going to sit down for a podcast interview for Big Fish so people can hear a lot more about your adventure in the jungle. I, for one, will be listening. Thank you so much for coming back on the show today. Spencer Matthews and John Belton, well done. Thanks so much for having us. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Now, connection is a huge part of wellness and Street Feast is calling on communities to get together for a national day of celebrations. Street Feast takes place next Sunday, the 25th of June, and I'm joined by campaign director Mary Fleming. Mary, you're very welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So tell us a bit about Street Feast. It's been going since 2010. Yeah, so lucky number 13 now this year and it's been growing steadily year on year. And we have about a thousand street feasts happening every year. Hope to have the same again this year. And with that, we have about 110,000 residents taking part across Ireland every year, which is amazing. And something that I loved reading about this, not only do you sort of supply the packs and get the whole thing going, but you also get feedback and gather a bit of research about what it meant to communities afterwards. Exactly, yeah. Um, we try to gather those stats to see, you know, what worked and what didn't, what we can do better next year and really what makes a great feast and what helps people to connect better. So what, what are, the, feast, what are some of the things you've heard from people? I think it's really just starting out small. That is the most impactful. So not taking on too much too soon because the street feast can be as small or as large as you like. But the recommendation is just really to get a table out there in the beginning and get some, you know, food for sharing. Everybody brings their own dish and that kind of gets good conversation going as well. And from that then, we kind of see like amazing things happening in the community, like residents associations being set up and, you know, things like cleanup days and things happening from that. So I guess what we see is, you know, from these small seeds, kind of bigger trees can grow. 
I mean, some of the stats here, 96% of those surveyed felt their neighbourhood is friendlier after having the street feast and 97% say their sense of belonging has increased since street feast. And people would think, sure, that's just marketing mumbo jumbo. But we have got to a stage where lifestyles are busy. We're not connecting as a community the way we once would have. And I, I know people would have felt that during the lockdowns when we could only be outside. And I know a lot of people did sort of take out to the front of their gardens and start talking. And and we, you know, we, we started to forget that again, haven't we? That's so true. I think we were just talking about that in the office last week, how we all seem to be back to being as busy, if not busier than we were before COVID. And, you know, COVID definitely did help people realise how important community is. And I guess as an organisation, we just really believe that those connections lead to, you know, more supportive and sustainable neighbourhoods. You know, you can go from saying hello to a a much more meaningful sort of how are you and leaning on people for, you know, support when you really need it. So we really think that like from something like Street Feast, those neighbourly relationships, you know, that's where they can start. And it kind of gives people the tools to just do more things together. So it's only just the starting kind of point for and um, the kind of bigger things that can happen and the more meaningful relationships that can grow. And look, I'm guilty of it myself. I mean, we would kind of knock into more vulnerable neighbours over that time. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm definitely going to continue that. And uh, of course, life just carries on and, you know, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months. So this is just a good way of starting people off. So What's your advice to someone who's saying, yeah, let's do this on our street, but they don't really know anybody like you. You send out a pack and that includes like bunting, invitations, posters and stickers. Do you just start putting that through letterboxes then? Exactly. Yeah, you get these small little invites and you can start putting them through doors and hopefully start getting some responses. You put your phone number on the back and people let you know if they're attending. And that's it, really. And then you ask kind of people to bring along a dish on the day that doesn't have to be anything fancy or I mean it can be fancy if you like and you can kind of start scheduling some bits from the day then if you have the capacity like maybe a few games I know on my dad's street they do bingo and dance classes and they've had music being played as well before so it can be kind of as varied as you like it really depends on kind of what sort of area you're living in and it's probably important to say as well that they can really be held anywhere You don't have to like shut the street down or anything no, well, you can if you like, if you want to get permission from the local council, but you can also have it in a local green space. Um, I'm living in Crumlin and I can see in Drimna that they're having it in the local GAA. And um, that's great because, you know, they'll have insurance covered and everything. So, I mean, linking in with local groups is a great bet for, in terms of space and, uh, yeah, having a, everybody, you know, welcome on the day. And if you are yeah. feeling intimidated listening thinking oh I'd love to do that but I won't rest assured 100,000 people took part nationwide in Street Feast it does happen it's a good vibe thing you can find out more at streetfeast.ie Campaign Director Mary Fleming thank you so much for coming on Thanks for having me So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week my thanks to my producer Aoife Breen to all of my guests today and to Hugo De Silva Scott who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening I will see you next week Alive and kicking on News Talk.